Hey, it's Christine Gowdy, and I'm back with another episode of Moonshot Podcast. In this episode, I feature the man, the myth, the legend, Trent McClellan, as he chats all about his 20-year career in comedy. He talks about chasing your curiosity and his desire to own a food truck. It's a really great episode. I hope you enjoy it. Trent McClellan, welcome to my show, Moonshot Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. <laughs> it was hard to book in with you. I'm telling you, like your assistant, like it was tough to get a spot. So I'm pretty lucky. I had to get my people to contact your people. And then you're also very busy. So luckily we met in the kitchen. We were able to figure this out. So I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. So for anyone who doesn't know you, um, Trent is a cast member of 22 Minutes. He's a comedian. He is the host of the Generators podcast, and he's also a barbecue guru. That's a new title that you've added to your list. Yeah, I'm hoping to uh, make some money at that next year. There's the uh, barbecue guru, which is the name of the the uh, food truck I'll be driving downtown. So oh. uh, keep an eye out. You're going to monetize that. Interesting. Barbecue guru. Yeah, it's a slow. We just do hot dogs, small hot dogs. Oh, little weenies. Yeah, little weenies, and we just we're gonna work our way up. So like we're gonna start small. Party sausages. Party sausages, yeah. Which was actually the original name of the truck, oh, okay. but uh, we, we the city the city it. didn't like that one. The city thought that was the city like, would not approve that. Yeah, it's hard wow. to get a permit for that. So we we're just gonna go with the uh, barbecue guru. All very, right. Very general, Weird. you know. Huh. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Anyways, so for anyone who doesn't know you, um, if they're just crawling out from under a rock these days, uh, why don't you tell the people listening a little bit about your very multifaceted career in comedy? Well, uh, I started doing stand-up comedy in 2004 in Calgary and uh, fell in love with it immediately. We just had this moment of like, oh God, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. But that kind of light bulb epiphany moment. And then that was my focus for the longest time was just do as many stand-up shows as I can, get as good as I can, hit the road a lot. Um, and then because often when you're a comedian, you get offered other opportunities. So I started getting offers to like audition for commercials or get some acting roles. And I kind of put more work into that side of things. And um, so I was doing both things for a while. And then about, I guess, almost seven years ago now, I got asked to be a cast member of This Hour's 22 Minutes, the um, sketch comedy show. And uh, I'd done a little bit of writing for them previously and uh, some on-camera stuff, like, you know, man in the street type thing. And it was great. And then I got asked to be a cast member. So that's what I've been doing for the last uh, last six years, six and a half years. So it's uh, been quite the ride, lots of roller coasters and um, lots of unknowns, but I, I love it. I feel like I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. So it it feels it feels good when I get up in the morning. You know, I was having this thought earlier today. It's like when you're in this line of work, and even though I've been pretty fortunate, you know, to be on this TV show and stuff, it's like you still always feel like you have to do think about the next thing. Like if you take too much rest, it's a bad thing. Like downtime's like, okay, you can rest for a little bit, but like, what's the next thing? What's the next tour? What's the next show? Can I develop another show? Like I don't know. It just doesn't shut off. And so sometimes that's a bit of a detriment I find at times because it makes it harder to just unplug and just, you know, totally kind of step away from that whole world. But I feel like, I don't know, for a lot of creatives, I think, I know for myself in particular, it's like you're always, your wheels are always spinning with new ideas or 
for me in stand-up, like something could happen. And all of a sudden I think like, oh, that would be a really good bit to take on stage. And then my mind's working on that then for the next 30 minutes. And so it's, I've learned to kind of accept that that's the way I operate, but at times it's exhausting being me, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, <So. laughs> because technically this is your downtime, but I right. don't think you really do downtime per se. Because since you wrapped with 22, you've had your Dirt Road Kid comedy tour You've had offers thrown at you left, right, and center. Um, so yeah, it's you really got to force yourself to pause and take that time, right? It's it's hard. I agree. As a creative, you always want to be creating, but then when do you actually replenish? When what is that refractory period where you actually replenish the creativity? I, I suffer from the same thing. Createitis is that what it's called? No, I just made sure. that. Up. No, I think that's a real medical term. <laughs> I think that's you can get you can get an ointment for that. There's an ointment you can use for it's creatitis. It's itchy. It's weird. It's bad, yeah, especially like in the summer. Itchy. Summer it really flares up. It's you an know? itch you got to scratch. Yeah, but yeah, like how, so how do you force yourself to pause and take the downtime? Uh, I think by learning the hard way, to be quite honest, I think like doing it the other way, which was saying yes to everything and quite a large amount of people pleasing going on in there as well, where you're like, oh, if I don't take this gig or offer, someone's going to think I'm difficult to work with. So I better take it so I don't, you know, kind of have a reputation flying around about me behind my back. You know, there was that fear. And also when you start out in this, like you're really, it's driven into you to like, man, work as hard as you can, pay your dues, say yes to those gigs. It'd be a great experience and you can use that going forward. So that's drummed into you from the minute you get into this business. So no one talks about self-care. No one talks about rest. No one talks about hey, downtime and just living some life is also really good for creativity, right? Not just nose to the grindstone 24-7 trying to crank out the next thing. So I had to learn the hard way. And I, but what I've realized is when I do take those breaks, as short or as long as they may be, I'm always better off on the other end. Like I find creative ideas flow easier at the other end of it. And I'm just in a better place. And also... I don't resent the work I do take then. I don't go into gigs going like, oh, I don't want to be here. I'm not in the mood. Like, you know, it just, you feel enthused by work and you feel excited and fortunate to be doing the things that you're doing as opposed to resentful. So it's, that balance is hard to get at times, but I'm, I'm getting better at it. Yeah, because when you're self-employed, I feel like you're always afraid it's going to go away. I'm always afraid this, this might be the last contract the last gig or whatever. So I think that's why we always want to be two steps ahead, but that's so exhausting, right? When you're self-employed, you just, you just want to be in the moment and present, but how do you do that when like, what if this is the top of the mountain? And what if this is the last thing I'll ever get? Sadly, I don't know if it ever goes away because I felt like that when I started my first business in 2009, do you think that ever goes away? Do you ever get comfortable and just know more things are coming and just trust or are you the same as me where you're just like, Oh shit. Like what if this is it? Do you, I, I, yeah, I think I wonder if it goes away or if we just reframe it or give it a new definition. Cause I used to confuse it with arrogance. I used to think, Oh, I uh, stuff will just show up for me if I don't, you know, put myself out there and I'll just show up. But I don't think it's arrogance as much as it is just faith, right? That like you've put a lot of work in this industry and that other opportunities do come around and it doesn't mean you're going to be lazy or, or, you know, rest on your morals about, you know, past achievements, but just that, you know, opportunities do tend to keep coming around and you can actually pick up a phone or email somebody or generate an opportunity out of nothing. Like that can also happen. Right. So the rest is just equally as important. Like I, 
I've watched performers and entertainers as well, like not take the rest. And I, I see what it does to them. And you learn, I believe, really believe you can learn from other people's mistakes. Like you don't have to make them yourself. You could actually yeah. watch other people choose certain things. And uh, I've watched people not take that break and there's consequences to that. And also like, what's it all for, right? If you can't enjoy your life, if you can't take a vacation, if you can't totally unplug and just enjoy what's there in front of you, then what, why, why go down this road at all? Like, what's the point of it? Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And in entrepreneurship, burnout is the consequence of not taking those breaks. Right. But do you think in comedy or entertainment is burnout a real thing too? If you're just going from gig to gig to gig, eventually do you just get tired and you just don't want to be funny anymore? Like what, what happens in comedy? Yeah, I think there's that resentfulness that I mentioned earlier about, you know, just not looking forward to the gigs. You're probably a little less patient, uh, that enjoyment of being up there and performing and all that goes with it, right? So it's the travel, it's the checking into the hotels, it's the meeting audience members after a show, it's all that stuff. Like it, it demands a lot of energy. And so when you start to get burnt out or like start to wind down, your energy stores are very, very low. And so it feels like work suddenly. And you, you don't ever want it to feel that way. I don't want it to feel like I have to do this thing. That's not why I started this. I started this because it was fun, energizing. I felt like I was, you know, surfing a wave the whole time I was up there. So it's like, I want to always try and get back to that true north of, yeah, that's why you started it before it became a business or a job or before you made any money at it. You just loved doing it. And it was great to just say something you thought was funny and hear, you know, tons of people laugh in the moment. And that's what it's about. So, but you can lose track of that pretty quick. The other thing is, I'm sure it's the same for you having your own company is that there's no one to tell you to take a break. Right. There's no one yeah. saying, hey, we looked at the calendar here and it uh, looks like someone's really been punching a lot of hours. And uh, I think it's time you took a break. Like, you deserve a vacation. Exactly. Yeah, it's not right. Coming. It's not like coming. for you, your, your customers don't care about that. Like for me, like people who want to see me perform live or watch the show 22, like they're just like, hey, when's the next thing? And that's not their fault. That's just the life that they're in. So we have to put it upon ourselves to take the pause. We have to monitor where we're at mentally and emotionally and physically and go, okay, yeah, it's time. So now I'm getting better at scheduling the breaks, like not waiting till I hit the wall and then go, oh, I got to gotta take a break. It's like, no, here's what I can handle ahead of time, this many weeks of things. And then, all right, there'll be a break at the end of that. So you know how you see like musicians or actors or, or whoever, every now and then they just kind of disappear for a while. They just kind of go away for a little while and everyone goes, what happened to so-and-so? I haven't seen that person in a show or a movie or, you know, release any new music in such a long time. Does that make sense now? Do you think like they take these long hiatuses or breaks and, and people just kind of wonder like, what the heck happened to this person? But, but maybe that's what it is, right? Maybe they're just trying to replenish their, their creative resources. Is that what that is? And, and do you think that's, that's why they do it? Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think, again, they learned from doing it the other way. You know what I think is a master at doing that? And it just came to me as you were asking this question. I think Adele is a master at doing that. Yeah. Adele will put out an album and it'll blow everyone's socks off. Just like, this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. Yeah. Then she, she'll go on tour to support that album. Yeah. And then you don't hear of Adele for years. It's like, she's not on social media. She's not looking for your attention. It's like, go off, live life, spend time with her child, with her husband, live her life. And then there'll be another album a couple of years later, boom, everyone's blown away. I'm like, that's the model. Like, that's the way to do it. Not, 
in constant demand for attention, not constantly looking for this thing. It's like I put it a thing that I really worked hard on. I support that with a tour and then I'm out. I'm back to living life again. Like to me, to me, that looks like how she does it. And I think it's an amazing formula. Like also if you're going through stuff in life, you're leaving room to process whatever it is you're going through. Cause life doesn't stop just because, you know, you and I are self-employed and have these careers. It's like, there's heartache and, you know, issues and health things and all that stuff. So where do you leave room to deal with all that stuff? And I think those kind of scheduled breaks allow you to just be a regular human being and, and live your life. But yeah, Adele comes to mind when I think of uh, someone who's, I think maybe figured out the matrix, you know? Well, I think the last time she went away for a while, she got divorced and went through some very difficult personal trauma and that fueled the latest album. So yeah. she actually kind of manifested all that into, you know, some music and created something beautiful out of something painful, which is interesting. But, you know, I think she, yeah, exactly what you said. She went away, she dealt with some stuff. She came back and felt ready to release another album, which also blew off everyone's socks. Everyone's tube socks went flying. Dude, and- I got hit in the face with a tube sock. A tube sock hit me in the face that I didn't own. That's how far socks were getting blown. There were tube socks from the 80s, though. Like, yeah. we're not my gonna put mom any shape. used to buy them for my brother. They were just straight pieces of material. Yeah. There was no heel. Yeah. It was just no like- shape. Yeah. <laughs> just, here's, here's just a piece of fabric and it, with an opening. Put like, that around your foot. Even, we're not even trying. Like, we're a sock company and we're just releasing like leg warmers and stitching up the end of it. What are we doing? Are these just baseball bat covers? Like, what are we, what are we, is this, are you sure it's a sock? Sure. Put are, it, you, just, you can use it for your arm if you want. Use it for your hand or arm. Warmers? What's happening? Anyways, What's yeah. Happening? So uh, we get off. I think, I think you're right though. I think like, uh, I know in the entertainment industry, and I think you may get it as well in the entrepreneurial world from people not in your company per se, but people on the outside about this, like fear of cooling off, like, Hey, you're hot right now. You got to keep going. You can't take a break right now. Like you got to do the next thing in entertainment. That's the thing quite often, especially for musicians. Like, okay, that last album was killer. We got to put another album out right off the back of that. Movies do it quite a bit, right? With a successful franchise, like that movie did great at the box office. No rest for anybody. They're we probably go right going into, straight into the next one, right? right? Yeah. While that one's in the box office, they're actually filming the next one. Yeah. Yeah. Because they want to ride off the hype of that last one. And so you get this pressure from people to like, get, you do the next thing. Like we can't take a big break because people will forget about you. If you go away, people forget about you and someone takes your spot. Like that kind of fear is always talked about. So you almost have to fight for your peace of mind and freedom to go like, no, I'm, I'm taking a break. Like I, I, I get what you're saying, but I need time. Like I just did a tour for two years or whatever it is. Like I'm out, I'm done. But that's something you'd have to decide as an artist or as an entrepreneur, even, you know? I also think that if you create something great enough, whether it's music or comedy or products or whatever it might be, people don't forget about you. People do wait to see what you're going to do next. And I think like the expectation we put on ourselves is that we think people are waiting to see the next thing we're going to make. And they are. And, and the, the reality, reality is they might forget about us for a little while. Cause yes, people come along and people take your spot, so to speak. But, you know, as soon as you're ready to come back and bring something back to the table, I think you just step right back into the spot that you left when you did take the break. You know what I mean? Like you don't really lose anything. I think people are always going to be loyal if if what you created the first time around really impressed them and really moved them for whatever reason. 
I think they, you know, they're going to be there, but we're, we always convince ourselves they won't be like, we're, we think that people who support us are, are, are so flighty and they're going to run and chase the next shiny thing. But when you think about musicians that you loved in the, I don't know, the nineties or two thousands, even though some of them have never released another album, you still have some of their albums on repeat. Like you would still go see them if they got back together and, and played a concert. So I think that's something we need to remember too, because, uh, you know, even if the band breaks up, there's still a following that you can regain if you want to come back and, and get a second win to do it. But, uh, I don't know. We convince ourselves that that's not the case for some reason. Yeah. I think it's a scarcity mindset, right? Like you think, yeah, it will go away. And if I, you know, take my foot off the gas, but I also think to counter that it's like, would you rather take a break? and put something out that you really feel like you had, you know, enough time to make and create, and you're really, really proud of it. And now you're going to share that with the world as opposed to next thing, next, next, next thing. And you feel like, oh, I'm not really overly exactly. proud of that thing, but I, they, the record company needed me to put an album out. So we put this thing out after nine months and it's selling and we're making some bucks, but I'm, I don't really want to hang my hat on that. Like that happens a lot. I think for musicians in particular, where that second, third album, they're like, yeah, that was not, that was not me really, but I had this contract where I had to make three albums in right. five years. And so, so I think, I think you're right, man. If you can pause and create your own speed of how you want to process things and how you want to live, and you can create things comfortably within that speed. And I think it serves it serves your mental health most importantly, but also it serves that project that you want to put out in the world. It's been it's had enough time to incubate and to go out and be the thing that it's supposed to be, as opposed to a rush job where, hey, it's a thing. Look, here's another new thing I got. Hey, look at this. It's like, okay, but are you proud of it? Like we've all seen sequels, yeah. right? The movie sequels where you're like, first one was amazing. The second one, you're like, I don't, did they make that in 12 minutes? What was they have what to was do that? that? <laughs> Yeah. You know, who's a master at that, though, I really believe very few people are, but the back to back to back kind of uh, artist like Drake, he's been putting yeah. out top 10 hits since 2010. And I feel like that guy, I don't know, I'm sure he takes vacations, I'm sure of it. But like, the amount of number one hits and top 10 chart toppers and this and that, like, he's been pretty consistent, but that is not the norm. That is not yeah. the usual speed of releasing albums and collaborations and singles. And yeah, it's pretty impressive to watch, you know, but is, how do you do yeah. that? It is pretty impressive to watch. And I often wonder too, like how much of that stuff was already ready to go? Like it, it, uh, it's new to us, but he's, yeah. he's been sitting on it for a long time. Like I'm not putting all my music at it once. I'm going to stagger it so that, you know what I mean? Like I, I got 40 songs. This next album is going to be 12. And yeah. so by the time you process that 12, here's one more single here's two more like you know what i mean like i don't know that to be true but it's like it is amazing that someone can put out that much stuff that's of that high quality and everyone's like holy lord another one like you can't even keep track just of nail it. it just nail yeah. it every time like it's almost impossible that to me is an anomaly and he's kind of like an, a unicorn of the musical world but in entrepreneurship those unicorns are pretty rare um in comedy i'm curious is there any comparative kind of title for someone who's a unicorn comedian or someone who's just one in a million and they stand out and it's hard to replace them i mean i think of like the greats like eddie murphy and all these people from back in the day but like who would you call a unicorn comedian like it's just hard to duplicate what they do they are just so good and their craft is so developed 
and you don't even know why they just have this like x factor like about right. them who do you think what that would be there's so many talented people like you know i, I love bill burr and i love all, so many different styles of comedy like um you know, I, I love Jerry Seinfeld stuff. There's so many great comedians, Maria Banford. But like when I think about Unicorn, the first name I thought of was Dave Chappelle because I he started it so young. Like the, the cautionary tale would normally be you came in really young, started off like a ball on fire, and then you just fizzle out, right? Like no one maintains that trajectory of just keep going for the stars. And even though he stepped away for a while when he walked away from his show and all that, Right. He came back with just a focus on stand-up and just put out special after special and it just kind of blew up. And he just he almost came back at a higher level than when he left. Like, and the stand-up just kept improving. And for me, that's why I would call him a unicorn. I think some of the level of his comedy is pretty intellectual and makes you think as well. But also the fact that he started so young and he's still here at that age now, like still doing it. To me, that's rare because normally you would get chewed up. You know, and that's, that's a good like example that. too of someone that took a hiatus, a very extended hiatus, came back and sold out arenas again. Like how I saw him perform in Montreal back in two thousand and oh my god, maybe twenty fourteen, and I can't remember the theater I went to, but it was sold out. There was not one empty seat, and this guy had disappeared for what, like five years, ten years came back yeah, out of the blue was like selling out arenas and it was pretty impressive and he was equally as funny he had a bit more seriousness uh in the tone of his comedy towards the end of the show yeah. but he still had that undeniable you know humorous take on everything and uh yeah you're right he was a, a pretty interesting still is well, a interesting guy yeah for sure and also like to get back to what you talked about earlier about like we're afraid that you know if we take a break that no one will be there when we come back it's like Imagine the pressure, right? Like you walked away from the biggest sketch comedy show in the world. They were throwing 50 mil at him for more seasons. Yeah. He walks away from that and then comes back. Also is known as a great, great stand-up. So now you got to come back with something that's going to either be as good or better than what you've already done. Like that pressure must have been immense to go, all right, I'm going to step back out into the world knowing everyone's waiting to see, oh, do you still have it? Can you still do it? And he comes back as like, yeah, I'm going to blow it out of the water and just go to the next level. Like to me, that's what made it really impressive because it would have been easy to come back and people go, yeah, it's all right, but it's not, you know, it's not his old stuff, you know, like yeah, well, yeah. he came back and surpassed it. So to me, that's why I think Unicorn, because I go, I don't, I don't know anybody else who's done that, like that break and come back and done that. that and way. he has an air about him that almost feels like he just doesn't give a crap. Like he doesn't care what no. you think. He doesn't care no. if you come back as a fan. Like he yeah. just, he's just going to do what he wants to do and talk about the things he wants to talk about. And, and I kind of like that. I think that it really attracts fans to people like Bill Burr has the same thing where he'll say whatever the hell he wants. Uh, his Philadelphia show, his infamous Philadelphia show was a perfect yeah. example of that. <laughs> he pretty much told off the crowd and people ate it up with a spoon and they still come back for more, right? I bet you he sells out Philadelphia. Did you tell me before he sells out Philadelphia yeah. every time he goes back there? He, he sold he more tickets. The next... crowd. Yeah, he told the crowd off. For people who don't know, he was getting heckled really bad at this show. Most comedians were at this show that he did years and years ago. And so he just flicked the switch and was like, I'm just going to go at the audience and just annihilate them with everything he could think of right and they're booing him and screaming <laughs> and yelling at him and 
I think he said like he thought his career was over because he goes like, wow, that was like an epic bomb. They hated me. It's over. Yeah. But then the clip went viral on the Internet and people were like, that was amazing. This comedian just stood there and just gave it back to the audience. And I think the next time he went to Philadelphia where it happened, he sold more tickets than he sold before because they were like, that's the guy who hey, he was crapping on Philadelphia. We're going to go see him. It's like, he what? was a man with nothing left to lose in that moment. Nope. Like he just left it all on the table and it was pretty impressive, but at the same time, if you did that now, do you think if he did that now, he would get canceled to some extent or like people would really kind of, you know, turn on him or it, was it just because it was that time and that place or could he still do that because of who he is? I don't know. It's an interesting question because his motto has always been, I think, you, you can't take anything away from me because I don't have anything. I just have me and my audience who wants to see me. So, but now since then, He's got like a movie in development. He is, you know, he's right. had a cartoon that he has. So now there are other people involved with him, networks and production yeah. studios and stuff. So now there could be things that someone could yank away if, if you know, there was a protest about his material. So I don't know how it would pan out. I would hope that they would go, okay, like we're still supporting this artist and we're going to, you know, let him do his thing. But uh, but I, I feel like that's the great thing about comedy in a lot of ways. If you're just doing stand up per se, is that that's the pure market, right? It's like, I perform this stuff. I do it. There's a market of people who like it and want to pay to come see it. And the story, story, that's it. There's no middleman. There's no, hey, well, we're in on that too. And this production company, it's like stand-ups, like, here's our product. It's like a farmer's market, right? It's like- You're like direct to consumer. Direct to consumer, yeah. Exactly. So there's no, there's nothing you can take away from the stand-up comedian because he's like, if you don't want to come to my show, that's fine. But there are people who do want to. So- Everybody wins. You're happy because yeah. you're not seeing me. Yeah. And these other people are like very happy because they are seeing me. Yeah. So so that's what I think is really cool about stand-up. It's just very, it's a very pure business in that regard. Yeah. So when you were a kid way back in the day, back in the 50s. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> back in the 70s. <laughs> the 1850s. Back in, back yeah. in the 1850s. Yeah. Um, no, back in the 70s. I was in the horse and buggy and right. I was just trying to get to school uphill both ways. And right. uh, yeah. Um Back in the 70s, Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Did you have dreams or visions or outlandish ideas? Like, where did you think things were going to go for you? When I was a really young kid, I wanted to be like an athlete, right? Like a lot of kids, you want to be like a hockey player or a soccer player. And after you kind of realize that's not going to happen, you know, that you're not going to play professional hockey or soccer, I, would, I was kind of lost, to be honest. Like, I graduated from high school and kind of just followed the crowd to university. Like, all my buddies are going to university. So I think I'll go there, too, because I have the marks that will get me into there. And Did my you? friends are going. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I paid the right people. And uh, <laughs> I get to, <laughs> you know, it's amazing what schools you can get into with an envelope full of cash. Right. But, um, paid someone to turn the D's into little B's. <laughs> yeah, it's like put a plus on there too. He goes, that'll cost more money. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I uh, I go to university and I was like doing a double major in history and English. And I still was kind of like, man, what am I going to do? So like, you know, I was trying to tell people too, like there's no timeline to figure out your path or your journey. Because I didn't walk on stage for the first time until I was 30, right? Like, I used to work with kids at boys and girls clubs and community centers. And I love that work. It was enjoyable work, but I knew deep down, like, this is not the thing I'm supposed to do the rest of my life, but I hadn't, I didn't know what to replace it with yet. So I was kind of just in this lost space of like, what do I do next? And as I said earlier, when I walked on stage the first time, I was like, oh, that's why the other things didn't 
make sense or why I didn't fully immerse myself in those other things because I it wasn't this. Yeah, because growing up in Newfoundland, I mean, what examples of comedians did you have, you know, back then? There weren't that many, I guess. And like, who, yeah. did you, who did you look up to when you were young, when you started getting into comedy and appreciating it? Like, who did you idolize? Well, you're watching. People? Yeah, to me, it was like comedy was just something on your television, right? Like, it wasn't something I could touch. It was like The Tonight Show and Late Night with David Letterman and Eddie Murphy's special and this person's special. So like, it was almost like being an astronaut. Like, that's not for people who live in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Like, that's for people who live in wherever this place is on the television, Hollywood, California, Gander. or whatever. Gander, California. And, uh, but you know what I mean? Like it wasn't, it wasn't tangible. There was no one to talk to about that profession. Sure as hell, your guidance counselor at high school in Cornerbrook wasn't like, you want to be a comedian? Not a problem. And then open the drawer with like 12 steps. Yeah, 12 steps to being a comedian. Trent, here you go, just slid across the table. I'm like, well, thank you, sir. Right. Uh, that wasn't happening. So it, you almost don't see it as a career. Like that's not for people like me who live here. That's like, I don't know who does that. I don't even know how you go about doing that. Right. And then I went to... When I was in university, I think I went to a show at the Delta in St. John's and Shama Jundra was on the show with some other comedians. And I thought it was my first time seeing a live comedy show, like being there in the seats. And I was like, holy Lord, like the power of like everyone laughing at one time and how energized you feel afterwards when something's really funny and that many people laughing together. And I was like transformed by it. Like I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. But I still didn't think. I was going to go on to do it. I just thought like, wow, a live comedy show is really cool. Right. Yeah. And then it was always just something in the back of my mind to like, can I get to a city where I could try it? Cause in St. John's at the time, there was no comedy clubs, no comedy scene. So it's like, great. You want to try this, but it ain't happening here. Like we don't even have that world here. Right. So when I decided to move to Calgary, I was like, if I can get to Calgary, I'm going to go to an amateur night and I'm going to try once. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to go on stage once and if it sucks and I bomb, no one will know what happened. If no one knows me here. It'll be great. Right. Luckily, it went well. And then, as I said, the light bulb went off. But yeah, it was a long time rattling around in my head. Like, how could I go about doing that? Or could that be real? Or, oh, that's a real comedian. I just met one. Like, you know what right. I mean? It was a gradual introduction to that world. And of course, once you go to amateur night, you're meeting all these crazy individuals who are also think just like you are like yeah comedy's the best i'm gonna be a stand-up comedian you're like so you find your tribe you mm -hmm. find your community of like oh you also just think about jokes all day and wanting to write stuff down and act out this and do whatever so then you feel validated like you're not on an island by yourself anymore you're like oh you all think like i do so it's part of the battle yeah it's yeah. part of the battle in any field i think is like as an entrepreneur as well the minute we start bumping into each other and meeting each other at different events and going oh you're you're taking those leaps of faith the same as me like your risk threshold is high you find your people right and that's such yeah. a, a powerful empowering uh, time in your life when you realize oh i'm not the only person doing this and this is not crazy like this is a viable yeah. career option if i really want to go down this road yeah um, yeah cuz when you cuz when you leave 9 to 5 like that is literally like getting on like a rocket ship and going to outer space like you don't know if you're gonna survive or will you make it back to nine to five no one knows like everyone's like well good luck everyone's just waving from the deck like well see you later we're we're saying prayers down here and good you're luck. like yeah me yeah. too i don't know what's happening yeah. yeah but then when you get you blast off you realize oh there's already other astronauts up there breathing and eating right. and living and surviving like, surviving and thriving yeah. and you're like oh oh this is there are other people up here there's life up here but but up to that point you're terrified right 
And do you remember the day that you handed in your resignation letter from your nine to five job? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got offered this tour. So I was working at Boys and Girls Club to give people context. I was working at Boys and Girls Club during the day. So Monday to Friday and working with kids and enjoyed it. And I was doing gigs on the weekend, you know, Friday, Saturday night. And then I would go back to work on Monday. So I'm doing that for three years, right? Day job, weekend gigs, doing stand-up. So then I get offered this tour of uh, in Newfoundland, actually. I think it was about 10 shows or seven shows or something. And I talked to my boss and she was very supportive of my comedy career. And they'd come out to shows and we even done a fundraiser at the Boys and Girls Club, like with comedy and stuff. So they were very supportive of what I did on the side. And I, I go, hey, can I can I get some time off to go do this tour? And they're like, well, you, you used all your vacation time. We don't have any more vacation time to give you. And like this next stretch is really busy. So it's not a good time to go away, blah, blah. So I was like, oh, wow, I really want to go on this tour. So it was kind of like, oh, well, I'm just going to not work here anymore then. Like this, that would solve it, right? Like, and they were like, I get it totally up to you if that's what you want to do. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to resign and not work here anymore. So it was scary because you're walking away from like, you know, like RSPs and like two, you know, bi-weekly paycheck that's guaranteed and all that stuff. So I was so excited. I'm going to go do this tour. So I go off and do the tour and uh, I come back to no gigs, right? Like I have nothing else. All I had was that little tour of seven shows or whatever. So I go talk to my agent and I say, uh, hey, I did it. Stepped away from my day job, full-time <laughs> comedian now. All right. What gigs we got? Let's go. I'm ready to go both feet. Let's make it happen. And, <laughs> said, and I quote, why would you do that? Why would you quit your day job? It's summer. No one does comedy in the summer. We don't have any gigs. Like, why wouldn't you talk to us about that before you quit your day? You quit your day job? Like, I was like, this is not what you want to hear from your agent when you just said it. I'm all in. Like, where's the gigs? So I was like, oh, no, I made a terrible mistake. Like, and that summer was lean. Like, that was like, there weren't many gigs. And it was like, Red oh, no, what have I done? Yeah. Yeah. Looking for five bucks in a winter jacket, like okay, let's check the winter jackets again and see if. Uh... But then when fall rolled around, gigs started to come in and stuff. But it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Like it's just a leap of faith. Like literally, I think it's going to work out. So here we go. So if you met someone now who reminded you of you in your younger years, um, and they said, "Yeah, all I want to do is get into comedy," and let's just say they're sixteen, and they're growing up in Green Bay, Newfoundland. What would you say to them? What kind of advice would you give them? They're young. They're very, you know, like excited, bright eyed and bushy tailed. What do you think you'd say? I would say. Why do you want to do it? Like, do you want to do it? Because you love making people laugh and you love writing jokes and you love performing. And if you if that's the reason why you want to get into it, then by all means, go after it, go for it. But if you're like, I want to be famous and I want to make tons of money and I want girls to like me, it's like, I would have more questions for you, right? Because it's, this career is heartbreaking. It'll like, it'll punch you in the stomach like a couple of times a week, right? Like it's hard at times, especially when you start out, right? Very little money, gigs are not great. A lot of travel to God knows where, trying to make people laugh at a community center who, by the way, didn't know there was comedy tonight. Um, you know, so if you're- lines club. Yeah, because I think some people come into it thinking, I'm going to be Kevin Hart and play in arenas next year. It's like, I'm just telling you, 
law of averages, that's not most people's experience, right? Like how many kids play hockey and how many of them are Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid, right? There's both play hockey. This guy's got that. And you're driving in your Ford Tempo to twin rinks, right? There's a difference. Like it's, there's no, I'm not saying one's better or not. I'm just saying yeah, they're different yeah. roads. So I would ask those questions because I, I think if you just follow your natural curiosity and what that passion and fire is, and for me, it was just getting on stage and performing. I didn't think about fame or any of that stuff. I was just like, it just feels so good to make people laugh. And I was like, and you get paid to do this? I was like, I'm us it. I win. That's all I yeah, need. That's yeah. great. And There's I think so if many... a kid can come into it with that attitude, yeah, they'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, I just see so many parallels with entrepreneurship too, because there's so many, not even necessarily young people. There's just lots of people overall that just want to pursue an entrepreneurial dream that they have or some sort of an idea. And when people ask me like, what should I do? What are my first steps to starting my own company? And that's one of the first questions I ask them too. Do you want to do this because you want to, you have a, a passion about starting your own company and making a difference? Or do you want to get rich quick? So like which one? Because I know it sounds silly, but the amount of people that just want to get rich quick, they just see the the fancy kind of, you know, polished entrepreneur that's been doing this for a long time, but they see the end product and they see the, the million dollar fundraising round they just raised or whatever else. Um, they don't see the struggle, the, the broke early stages. They don't see any of that. They just want to go from point A to point B with no struggle. I always want to like drill down and find out like, what is your true desire here that you really want to build something, uh, you know, genuinely from scratch, or you just want to have that fancy flashy life that you think comes quick. Cause if that's the case, you're going to be very sadly disappointed when, you know, year five rolls around and you're still scrounging to, to bootstrap your venture and you're still living on a budget and you still don't have that revenue that you think you're going to have. Cause yeah, entrepreneurship too. Like this company, like this life, this lifestyle, I just feel like will chew you up and spit you out so fast if you don't enter it with the right purpose in mind. Yeah. It seems yeah. like entertainment is very similar in, in that way. Very similar. And I think, I guess it's the Steve Jobs adage, right? Of like, you might as well pick something you love because that way when it gets hard, you'll keep going because otherwise right. you'll just quit. Like, if you're thinking I'm going to get rich quick doing stand up and the gigs are terrible and travel's terrible and the money's terrible, why would you keep going? If that goal is still so far away and you may never get to that financial goal, like that may never happen, why keep going? If there's not a basic love of performing, writing jokes, fixing jokes that don't work, uh, that creative base, if you don't love that, then where there is no sunshine because the other part's not happening. So, yeah. That's the way I think too with entrepreneurship for you. It's like it, you know, and we, you know, I've talked about this before, but you know, when you often, if you go to a conference or something, or uh, I go to a comedy festival or something and I see other comedians, when I see comedians who've been around as long as I have or longer, I feel like you just came out of a bunker and there's been like a, an apocalyptic war or episode. And you're just kind of seeing who's still left standing. Like, uh, Chris, you're still, you're still doing it. Okay, great, man. Do you have any vitamins? I got water. Like, it's just, it feels like that. Like there's only so many of us left doing it. That started because it is hard and it doesn't mean they weren't talented. The people who quit, it just means they were like, man, I can't, I can't take any more kicks to the guts. I'm out. Like, I'll be I honest with you like too. I agree. Like five years into this now. And when I see people that are still here from when I first started, 
I'm just like, my hat's off to you. Like the utmost respect. It's an unspoken respect, but it's like, I know if you're still standing, I know the kind of crap that you've dealt with. I know because that's what it takes to get five years into a company. So if you've been here this long or longer, I just, you know, absolutely like totally yeah. uh, all the respect in the world. And when you stay around long enough, like I'm sure it's the same thing in your world, you're seeing you're seeing your colleagues get to that next level or the next level after that because they've stayed around long enough and learned enough lessons and pick themselves up enough times that they've learned enough to now finally stick around long enough to now actually start to see those other levels of success. And in comedy for me, for example, you start to see colleagues get TV shows or a radio show, or, you know, they get the successful tour or whatever, but that didn't happen in year five. It didn't even happen in year 10. It's like, it took year 15 or 16 or 20 yeah. before any of that happened. Right. And they just had enough resilience to stay with it. It wasn't necessarily more talent. It was just like, this hurts and this moment sucks, but I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to go again. And I think that entrepreneurial world, it's probably the same thing I would imagine, right? Of like, how many punches can you take? And if you can take enough, you give yourself a chance for that big thing to happen. You give sure, yourself yeah. time for that big door to open finally. And now you're like, oh God, okay. But you got to be able to take the punches. I'm starting to realize that it's just about who can hang on the longest, right? Um, what do you call it? The war of attrition. Yeah. It, it's really just kind of like, this is the group that you start with, you know, the year that you start. And then the group just keeps getting whittled down to the point where like, not a lot of people are left after a while. So yeah. I also see how difficult it was in entrepreneurship in year two and three. And that's when typically a lot of people quit. They just give up because that's when, you're, you know, really kind of brought to your knees and, and tested in so many ways. Um, and I can see now why you would quit after a couple of years, because you don't see an end in sight. Like you thought this was going to be two, three years. You thought that the 16 hour days were exaggerated by people that came before you. And then you start living it and realizing, oh, like this is, I have to be all in and I have to be all in for an undetermined amount of time. And there's no end in sight. There's no, no one's buying this company next year. So this could be a decade. And I can see why people just go, oh, I'm going back to that job at Boys and Girls Club or wherever else they left before they started this journey. But now that we're at year four and a half, I can just see how, you know, you're starting to see the rewards after this long because your, your skin is thicker. You've learned a lot of lessons. You also had, know how to say no to things that you would have said yes to in those early days. And I can see now how I feel more comfortable in the role of even just running a company and delegating and, and actually starting to scale. You start reaping rewards. They're so tiny, but those micro wins you didn't have in the early stages. So I, I, I see how like probably entertainment similar, all the stories you've told me about from doing gigs in your sock feet at parties to yeah. the smallest towns, you know, in Western Canada and driving for hours to get a $200 paycheck and you do it because you love it. And like you said earlier, if the passion's not there, you're not getting on that highway when it's hailing in the middle of winter and driving to, I don't know, Sault Ste. Marie or wherever it might be to do like a very tiny gig at the, at the Legion for a yeah. hundred bucks, unless you really love it and you feel like it's going to lead you somewhere better. And uh, entrepreneurs feel the same way. It's, it's big time. It, it is a marathon. And, 
there's well, no funny. no end to this marathon this one is like you're gonna no. run until the end of time well it's like you and i talk about too like it's just about winning the day man and sometimes the morning starts off and it's not a good day and it's like all this stuff's happened everything's going to, to in the fire and you're like can you turn this around today and maybe you don't even turn it around that day but tomorrow is another day and so you go okay well i got a fresh start tomorrow uh so there's always that the other thing I was going to say was that quite often the issues that come up are issues that you faced before. So you start to gain a level of confidence and competence with learning how to solve certain things. Or I've been in this scenario before, like, so you don't panic as quickly, right? Because you've already kind of walked through it. So I think that's really important because you start to, to build a level of comfort with discomfort. It's like that this doesn't yeah. feel good, but I've been here before. I, I'll, I know how to get the old toolbox out and fix whatever. Right. And so you don't have that in the early days. You think everything could be the end of the road. Like, Oh no, that's it. Today is it. I don't know. So it takes repetition of solving problems over time to build that level of confidence. And uh, I think that's really important. I always remember a quote that uh, Morgan Freeman, the great actor said once on the actor studio, an actor, young acting student asked him, you know, what advice would you give to a young Morgan Freeman before you became famous? Like you were like all of us, a student, like what advice would you give? And he said, you just have to keep moving. He's like, if you keep moving, there's always a chance that someone could help you or assist you, or you get that next break or that next role. But the second you stop moving your feet, it's over. No one's coming to save you. No cavalry showing up to put you on a white horse and ride you off. It's like, it is over. So yeah. it's on you to just keep the effort, the belief, the resilience, and then you know, it's like being thrown in the ocean and you're like, just keep treading water till you hope the boat comes, right? The life, the, the, the lifeguard's like, oh, uh, you know, the Coast Guard's like, there he is. He's over there. Oh, God, you've been there for, you know, four years, just treading water, right? You know, it's like, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of parallels to that, right? So entrepreneurship and to what I do, it's like, you just got to stick with it. Like, there's no other, when it's tough. That's why I think support network is really important too. Like a community of people who have also been through those fires because you get to pick their brain and lean on them. And then they can go, Oh yeah, I went through that. And here's yeah. what I did. And so it's, you find a community too. And that also helps. I agree. So you're probably, you're about 20 years into your career now, I'd say, is it 17, 18? Yes. Started no four. Yes. So we're 19 years. Probably. 19 years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think is left on your bucket list in terms of career things, like big things you want to do? Is there anything left now? Or do you feel like you've done most of those big milestones? I mentioned the food truck, right? <laughs> the um, tiny, tiny weenie food truck. Yeah. Barbecue guru. You have right. uh, yeah. a little, little plug there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I would like to write a book. It's something that I've, I've, chipped away at like occasionally over the years and i'd like to actually sit down and focus and get that done just to to do one and uh i'd also have to develop my own show i think that would be really cool to kind of develop my own show or two whether it's me on camera or just producing it yeah. so i think it's like always looking for more avenues to be creative you know like when i first started stand-up i thought i'll just be a stand-up and that'll be enough but then as you get older you start seeing other doors open and you get you know, get curious right like oh that would be cool to try or taste that or whatever so I think those things really interest me. And then I always leave the door open to like, you know, more acting roles or, um, you know, so I think I always realize that a year from now I could evolve and think very differently about what I want to do next. And so I'm always, I don't want to put a frame on it or a road there in front of me. It's just like, 
what are you feeling? What excites you? What energizes you? Chase that, like go after that, you know? So I think, yeah, that allows me to kind of have that freedom to, to just explore whatever I want to. So you want to do a rom-com next. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's a guy who owns a barbecue truck and uh, he makes makes this girl. She also has a barbecue truck. No, no, wait now. So he moves to New York to become a banker. That doesn't work out because his father's bakery is closing. So he moves back to his hometown buys yep. the the mini weenie truck mm-hmm. and uh, wants to support his father's bakery and yep. the girl that works next door in the flower shop needs a, a food truck to come to her volunteer event for uh for dogs in need and you show up in the tiny weenie truck no is that yep. not that's the hallmark movie we watched last night but <laughs> uh you... <laughs> the one I'm talking about is where the guy has the the food truck but the town also needs an ambulance so he has to double as the guy who cooks the hot dogs and stuff at lunch, but also they use it as a paramedic van as well. So it's it's kind oh, of um could be like a drama as well, like an episode it drama. It's right? like ER meets Guy Ferrari, like it's that kind of vibe. Like it's very tense at times, but then you're just having delicious hot dogs, right? So I mean it's a lot of something for everybody, I guess what I'm saying. So would the ambulance light be shaped like a wiener or yes? Yeah. Okay. They would go there. People, people call an ambulance and they go, I think the ambulance is here. Like people are very confused. They don't, is that a giant hot dog on the top? Yep. That's the paramedic. That's definitely him. That's, that's Ron. Ron's the paramedic. And he also does the hot dog thing. Right. Oh, wow. This is so. going way off the rails. Um, I have a couple more questions before I jump <laughs> into the rapid fire question round with you. Love it. Um, Something I'm wondering, and I'm sure the people would love to know, what is the scariest risk? What's the biggest risk you've ever taken in your career? Aside from quitting your nine to five job, I would say that's pretty scary for most people. But aside from that, like what what was the scariest moment for you? Scariest moment for me since then. Hmm. Like you knew it was a risk and you were just going to take another leap of faith. (laughs) was uh, having water during this podcast and uh, it going down wrong and choking. Um, need a paramedic? <clears throat> I need the hot dog paramedic. <laughs> that Hallmark movie. When does it put that on? Um, I'd say the next time I felt the most fear would have been when I was looking to try and get off the club circuit. So, you know, you play comedy clubs around the country and they're great and a lot of the clubs are awesome. But I wanted to start to try to do my own venues, you know, like theaters and stuff. So I started kicking tires on those. And so you go book these theaters and it's like, okay, well, put down your deposit of, you know, $2,000, $3,000. And you do that and put it on your credit card. And then it's like, okay, well, you got to go sell uh, 600 tickets or whatever it is to get your money back first. And then you got to sell beyond that to make any money. Like that was terrifying because up to that point, I just been playing comedy clubs where there was no financial risk on me at all. I just showed up. They did all the marketing, advertising. I didn't pay for anything. And uh, they pay me at the end of it and I walk away. Like there was no risk at all for me financially. But when you're putting your own money on the line and now you got to sell tickets and decide marketing and ticket price and you got to get worded about the show and you got these big places that you're trying to sell tickets to, like that was terrifying because it's like, Every day you're looking at ticket sales, like, did we sell one today? Is that right? Is that the right number? One ticket was sold? Like, it's terrifying. Um, but like I said earlier, that gets easier too. The more you do it, you start to realize like, okay, that's, I've seen this before. You can try this now or whatever. But the first time you go through that, 
absolutely terrifying. I was like, I can see why comedians don't do it. I can see why comedians just stay on the club circuit and play it safe because it's a lot easier on your nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. In entrepreneurship too, there's like risks after the initial, you know, leap of faith, there's other levels of risk in it as well. People don't understand that when they first start a company, they just think, oh, starting the company is the biggest hurdle. And then the rest is kind of, you know, easy. It's going to just flow from there. And it's not the fact, that's not the truth whatsoever. There's always another leap of faith and another one and another one. And uh, for me, I feel like we started taking out loans. I started taking out loans for the company. But for some reason, psychologically, you know, I knew I had to pay them back one day, but for some reason I just felt like, oh, I'll just deal with that later. I'll just tuck that away to the back of my brain. Cause by the time it's time to pay back the loans, we'll have lots of money, right? Like a few years in, like we'll be deep in revenue. Everything's going to be good. And that was not the case because COVID just destroyed everything. And then I had these massive loans I had to pay back and it was such a scary time. It was almost debilitating how much fear I had during that time, because I looked at how much money we owed and I looked at how now far behind we were a year and a half, two years. And I was like, it's all over. Like, I can't believe like, this is going to, this is going to end us. The decisions that I made are now going to destroy my company. So mm -hmm. yeah, I can appreciate like those, those risks that come after the initial risk because, uh, it's I don't terrifying. think the risk taking ever ends either, right? Like you just get used to, like you said, you get comfortable being uncomfortable and eventually risks when you're, when you're self-employed or an entrepreneur or in entertainment or whatever, just feels kind of normal. Okay. Now I have yeah. to make another decision. It doesn't even feel like risk anymore. Now it just feels like I have to make another big decision and yeah. make sure I'm, I have all the information I need to make a sound decision. But isn't it interesting because like you can do like the example that you gave where it's like that could have been enough for someone to pack it in right and go like whoa like i'm not getting in this position again like i'm gonna get out of this i'm getting out of that. i'm folding the company i'm paying off those debts i'm out yeah and same thing with me and stand up like you could put tickets on sale and not sell well and i've seen this happen to comedians they try it once and it doesn't go well and they're like that's it i tried it didn't work that was terrifying i lost some money i'm out yeah but it's interesting because I don't see myself as someone who loves risk at all. Like I'm not a person who likes to take a lot of risks in life in general, but with stand up, there was enough belief and faith there to go. Something inside me was saying, you need to do this. You need to try. And if it doesn't work out, even don't panic, just figure it out and try the next one. And I don't know where that came from. I honestly don't. I think it just, I don't know if it was the universe said, Hey, look, this is the thing you're supposed to do. We're going to push you through this risk and, the fear you have with it. We're going to have a hand on your back and shove you through it anyway. Cause yeah. I'm not like that. Normally I'm not a person who's like the kid who was climbing to the top of the apple tree. Like, Hey everybody. I was the kid on the ground watching for, I'll keep an eye out down here just in case someone come. I was that kid. Right. So, so yeah. I, I, I laugh at myself sometimes cause I go like, what am I doing? Like, this is not in my DNA at all, but it is when it comes to comedy, it is with mm -hmm. that world. And for you, there are people who would have got in the situation you got in and would have said, yeah, I'm out. I'm not going down this road again. But you were able to gather yourself and say, okay, this was terrible. I did not enjoy that. But what lessons can I learn? How can I rectify and go again? And that's not everybody. It doesn't mean anyone's better or worse. It just means that's just in us or it's not. Yeah, see, I was never, you know, risk adverse. I was always taking risks my whole life and big risks, right? Moving across country, moving around the world, risking my savings on things and doing all these crazy things in life. But 
I don't know, but there's just something with entrepreneurship that even though I didn't mind taking risks, they're just much scarier. I think when you start a company, because suddenly you have like people's livelihoods in your hands, you're, you're, you have to pay your staff, you have to make payroll, you have, you know, you have promises made to govern government agencies that have given you funding and people who are stakeholders in your business. And they want to see you hit those milestones that you promised. And I don't know, it's just like everything just increases in terms of just the stakes and you're upping the ante. And I don't know, even for someone like me, like I said, who doesn't mind taking risks, it was still very terrifying at certain stages in the company. I still have days like that once in a while, but like you said too, you just get more comfortable after a while. You just trust that the patterns you formed over so many years will repeat in terms of how you figure things out and how you get out of sticky situations. So I, I do try to lean into that more, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, there's no real answer to, if someone said to me, how do I avoid taking risks in entrepreneurship? I would tell them you can't, there is no such thing. There is no safe road to get to where you want to go. And I'm sure entertainment's exactly the same. Yep. Um, definitely. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's never not going to scare you, but if it didn't scare you, would you do it? You know what I mean? Like some of these big moments in life that really tested you um, and you're pursuing your passion or, you know, like you say, you're just exploring and chasing your creative, your creativity, your curiosity. Yeah. Um, if it didn't scare you, it wouldn't be worth it in my mind. I want to do things that make me feel alive. I want to do things that remind me, you know, we only have a short time here doing these things on earth. Like I, I want things that really push me to grow and to feel like I accomplished something. So I don't know. I, I like that aspect of risk. Yeah, I agree. And I think something you and I have talked a lot about in the last year, I would say is like, if we're going to choose to live this life, like you're going to do the entrepreneurial journey, I'm going to be in entertainment. How do we do it in such a way where we minimize suffering, right? right. Because it's one thing to do it. It's another thing to be up all night crying because you're you know, a mess because of A, B, and C. It's like, how do we minimize that suffering leading up to something? Or once we've gotten some news about something not going the way we expected, right. how do you not let, how do you, how do you just keep a moment as a moment for a couple of hours and not let it become a day, a week, a month, two months, whatever it is. Like, yeah. I think that's some, also something that people start to learn is to quickly assess a situation, feel what you feel, which is going to be discomfort, anger, frustration, whatever, but then quickly compartmentalizing that and getting into solutions and getting into like, all right, what's the next step? There's no time for feeling sorry for yourself. There's no time of why me and how come the world and the universe and i knew this with there's no time there's like just get on with it because you know all your insecurities start bouncing off your head and in your head you know and it's like i think that's something i've tried to get better at is just not living in the in that disappointment and as quickly as i can just gather myself again and i'm not saying i'm great at it and there's times where it's a lot harder than it is other times but i am starting to see some growth in that um, but I was, I'm assuming it's the same, it would be the same for you, right? Well, it's not even, it's not even the disappointment stuff, right? It's about leading up to one of your shows. Remember how you used to tell me, you'd say that you'd get really bad anxiety. A show is coming. You got to make sure you know your material. You want to make sure you can nail it. 
And I think, you know, even since I've met you, like you've grown significantly in that regard, because now you don't suffer. You don't, you don't feel like you need to perform at such a perfect level that you have to memorize things, you know, to be ideal. You can just let things flow a bit easier. And same with when I do keynotes and when I do public speaking, I used to be so stressed out and suffer so much leading up to that event. Even if it was a five minute talk or an hour long keynote, I would feel like it had to be perfect. I had to memorize things in just a certain specific way. And if I didn't do that, then it wasn't good enough. And now I just let go of the ropes a bit. I never speak with notes in my hands. And I refuse to, as a matter of fact, because when I have notes in my hands, it makes me feel like I have to memorize what's on the piece of paper. But then I also feel like I need to read off the piece of paper. It's a weird conundrum in my head. So now it's like, I refuse to use notes. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. I trust the words are going to come. I know from, you know, my past patterns of behavior that I do perform under pressure really well. So when mm -hmm. I'm on a stage, when I'm on a platform where I have everyone's attention, the words come to me, the right words come every time. And that's a mixture of just being prepared and being confident somewhat, right? But that suffering, I feel like I can't give someone the recipe as to how they can figure that out themselves, though, because it took me this many years to get to this point in my life where I've reduced suffering just in that one capacity. And mm -hmm. it sounds like you've kind of figured out a bit of a recipe for you, too. But I think everyone has to figure out what works for them because it's different for everyone, right? Like some people might have different anxieties than you or me or whatever, but um I think I've just gotten a handle on that. And even just that alone, that one little tiny thing has made entrepreneurship 500 times better for me because now I'm not worried about being perfect. I'm just worried about conveying the right message to the right people when I have to. And whether that's customers, whether that's investors, whether that's, you know, stakeholders of some regard, that's what my focus is. And I don't care what I look like. I forget about being perfect. I just focus on being true. And, yeah. and that becomes kind of my internal GPS, but um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure how you've changed your craft to hone that as well, but you, you definitely seem to suffer less too leading up to a show. Yeah. I think I was going to say exactly pretty much what you said about the, it's like you, you worry less about perfect and more about personal. Like I just, Hey, I'm going to enjoy this regardless of what happens like that mindset. And then yeah, I'm prepared. I prepared before I came, but like now I'm just going to let the cards fall where they may and just let whatever's going to happen, happen. And long as I am true to myself and I keep it personal, then I have to trust that you're going to connect with other human beings in the room, right? You're doing this thing where you're sharing, you're communicating, like, just let that happen. Don't worry about nailing the thing and saying the thing just like this. It's just like, just be organic. And I think adopting that mindset, I think really, really helped me. And the other thing was, you know, a therapist I'm sure would say, well, what are you, what are you afraid of? And you'd be like, right. well, if I, I'm afraid if I go out there, this will happen or this will happen. And they would say to you, okay, well, if that happens, what would you do? Like they'd walk you through, yeah. right? Like if this, then this, and if that happened, then you do this. So when you start breaking it down logically, there's really not much to fear, right? Like, it's like, well, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? What terrible thing do you think? It's not even real. It's just Real something you've imagined that could happen, right? Realistically, you're afraid of judgment. Like, let's just be yeah. honest. We're all yeah. afraid of being judged. Yeah. And when you're standing up on a stage where you have nowhere to hide, what you have on, you have on, whatever way your hair is, that's it. Like you're afraid of being judged. And women in particular, I can speak from experience, 
we're terrified of being judged because we've been judged on our exterior appearance our whole entire life, right? And that's something that um, you have to kind of make peace with inside yourself as a woman because you can't really change the psyche of a, of a society. You know, if you get on a stage, there could be some people that look at you in an inappropriate way. There might be. But at the end of the day, as long as you are being true to yourself and delivering the message that matters, you know, to you, who gives a crap who's looking yeah. at you and, and with the wrong intentions or whatever. But that's a really difficult thing for women to deal with. And in entrepreneurship, that's one of the things that no one talks about. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a and big, a, that's a bigger topic that needs to be unpacked eventually, but it's, it's, a yeah. Big, yeah. That's why you got to get into the comedy world because you can get up there and you can have a hoodie on and jeans and people are like, yeah, okay, as long as it's funny, I'm good. I don't <laughs> care. You know, like it's it's uh, to a certain degree, but no, I, I hear all that. I think we all go up there with stuff we're battling and and I think it it is different for women for sure. Um, the thing I, my little hack too, I don't know if I've ever talked about this publicly is that not just on stage, but like in life in general, my mindset over the last bunch of years has been like, regardless of what happens i'll use it to my advantage like almost like whatever that martial art is where like you use someone else's momentum against them um you know if they lunge you just use that to to take them down kind of thing it's like judo, judo yeah and I, I kind of feel like there's almost that mentality i've adopted where like i can't control the outside world i know that yeah but i know when I react to whatever it is, I'm going to use it to my advantage. So if I go out on stage, for example, and the microphone doesn't work well, I trust that I'm going to be able to use that to my advantage in some way to make fun of it, to now start screaming. That'll make it even funnier because this outrageous thing has happened. But before I had that trust, there was a lot of suffering because you're thinking about all the worst case scenarios. And if that worst case scenario happens, I'm done. Right. That's what I told myself. Because but when you get to this... Yeah. But when you get to this other mindset, which is like, no, no, it doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to use it to my advantage. That's a, that's a position of strength and that's, yes. uh, I'm able to handle whatever comes right. That's a very different mindset. Yeah, I agree. Cause if my slideshow doesn't play, I'll just improvise and, and speak the whole time and tell stories that I may not have told and whatnot, but it'll be equally as entertaining. Just, I know I have it in me now to just bring that out if I need to. Um, we're over an hour, so, uh, I'm going to jump into the rapid fire question round with you because this is the fun part. This is the fun part of the interview where I'm going to arbitrarily ask you some questions. We don't have to get into great detail about why you're going to answer the way you answer. Don't need a justification. Just, uh, you can just pick and choose willy nilly and, uh, we'll just keep moving forward. So this is rapid fire uh pizza or popcorn pizza interesting interesting choice no 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 delay there at all arnold schwarzenegger or sylvester stallone schwarzenegger really yeah adele or taylor swift adele interesting yeah if you could tour as a duo with any comedian in the world who would it be <laughs> it's going to be 12 months and you're going to be side by side with this person so it's got to be someone that you find entertaining too <laughs> uh, right i think burr would be bill burr would be hilarious to work with because i think offstage he'd be the same so you'd i'd be laughing the whole time right yeah all right if you could sell out any venue in the world 
what would be your dream gig? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know why. Can I can I say two or one? You can say two. Uh, in North America, it would probably be like Madison Square Garden because it's so iconic. Like it's, you know, everybody's played there and there's been so much history there. And I would say in the UK, like Wembley Stadium would be like, can you imagine like playing out, selling out Wembley Stadium with a stand-up comedy show would be insane. Those two. That'd be pretty cool. What's the smallest town you've ever played? Uh, I'm going to reword your question. Uh, I played not a town, but a village. (laughs) Uh, It was the village of, I can't remember the name of it. It was so small. There wasn't even a place to stay there. Like you had to stay in a neighboring town. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. Was it it Hazar or something? Or yeah, it was a village. I didn't know there were villages. I thought villages were like something in the movies. Like they're like, no, no, it's legally a village. I go, how do you get vi- how do you get village status? What is like how many more people right. have to come here? How many more people have to move here so you guys can get bumped up to town? Like, wow. Like, so uh was that that's Alberta like, or somewhere else? Yeah, it was in Alberta and like you know, this whole I want to be a comedian. It's like, yeah. Well, pack your bags, kid. You played a village. So, uh, you know what they say? It takes a village. And, uh, you know, it takes a village to start a comedy career. Well, that ties into my last question, because how do you want people to remember you and your career 50 years from now? In one sentence. I would like people to say that Trent McClellan was kind and he was creative. And I think if you can say that at the end of the day, then that was a pretty darn good life. Like you, you use the talents that you had to the best of your ability um, to make people laugh and tell stories, but also I was kind while I was here. So I think that would be the greatest, greatest legacy to leave. Nothing about the wiener truck. You don't want people to remember. And that. I would like people to please keep supporting the guru barbecue wiener truck slash paramedics, you know, because <laughs> People need nutritious junk food and uh, they need a paramedic. So because of the food, actually, which is the irony of it. I love it. I love it. Do a franchise, right? Start selling franchise weenie trucks. I don't know. Can't go wrong. Can't miss, I don't think. Bring them to every festival. All right. Well, thank you so much, Trent. I appreciate you donating an hour of your busy time to little old me. And uh, I'd love to have you back as maybe a a co-host or something on some episode in the future. And yeah, I appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on and good luck with the podcast. I'm excited that uh, you're doing it and I think it's going to be it's going to be huge. All right, thanks so much. Bye. Bye.